Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Holyrood magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Holyrood magazine. Yeah, and obviously these stories aren't new anyway. You know, there's there's long-standing, at least reports of Russian, what they call troll factories, people sitting in in buildings working to try and destabilise foreign states. (laughs) Maybe you could be the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. (laughs) I've never had those sort of ambitions, fortunately. Yeah, and then you throw in the fact that a former First Minister, Alex Salmond, presents a programme that is hosted on Russia Today, which is funded by the state. So it became... And the education that we had and the resilience that they built amongst the women. People go out into their communities and into the workplaces, and indeed, a few of them went into politics. Going back to your question, I'm certainly not of a model uh, that might have been a, a typical Tory woman. Okay, so first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That is a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. I've got quite a good bad week this week, Mandy, I think. Um, Hmm. I think you're going to agree with it. My bad week this week is Donald Trump. I don't know if he sees it that way, I should add, but that's following the news that he had done a cognitive test. I don't know if you followed any of this. Person, woman, man, camera, TV. <laughs> well, we're getting to that. I'm glad you remember. Um, That's so in 20 minutes after 20 questions. The, the, the background to this is that he uh, did a cognitive test around a year ago um, and is now boasting about it. He's um, very proud, very proud. He really did seem proud of it. It was the usual kind of rambling uh, gibberish, but he, as part of it, he boasted. He's the president the of the United States, Liam. Well, that's why he's allowed, I think. See, I wouldn't get away with that. Oh, sorry. I apologise to Donald Trump. Um, Person, woman, man, camera, TV. Yeah, you keep it up. (laughs) (laughs) So that's part of it. He boasted that the questions got harder and harder as you went, um, and that most people wouldn't even be able to answer the last five questions. It later turned out that those last five questions were to name the date, the month, the year, the place that you're in and the city that you're in at that time um that was that was what he was really proud of but as you say there was an even harder part of the test was that you had to remember five five objects was it five people five five things, things five in words. order yeah five words in order if you remembered them in order you got extra points the main thing yeah. was that you just remembered them but they person they woman man camera tv yeah you got it <laughs> i think we'll do that as a running thing throughout the show to make sure that your cognitive skills are still here i think the good news is i could clearly be the president of the united states I don't doubt you could with the right backing anyway. Um, yeah, that'd be good if this, if this podcast turned out to be a springboard for your campaign. I guess you don't have citizenship yet. Yeah, <laughs> I think there are quite a lot of obstacles. But anyway, person, woman, man, camera, TV. <laughs> That's actually quite good. Have you got that written down? Yeah, that's of course. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's my bad week anyway. It didn't seem to go particularly well for him. Although I'm not no. sure anyone really cares anymore. You know, yeah. this stuff sort of loses its impact as it goes. It does really, uh, and he just he just keeps giving, doesn't he? Really? Yeah, and he's confident about it. You know, he, yeah. he seemed to, he also seemed to feel that passing this cognitive test, which I don't I wasn't aware of until quite recently, led to him deflect a lot of criticism. So it yeah. may be working. Although I just his poll ratings appear to be falling. Can you say them? Uh, person, president, uh, horse. What was yeah. that? Yeah. Well done, Liam. I'm not ready for it. <laughs> Maybe you could be the prime minister of the United Kingdom. <laughs> well, I've never had those sort of ambitions, fortunately. <laughs> Which yeah. kind of leads us, I guess, on to uh, well. 
Yeah, it's a kind of, well, it as it is the case with these things, it sort of depends on your perspective. Um, yeah. But perhaps a good week for the union with Boris Johnson deciding to go on the campaign trail to really shore the union up. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly a good week for supporters of Boris Johnson that live in two very specific places because um, they got a nice visit from the Prime Minister. Um, it turns out he's a year into the job. I had not realised that at all. But yep, that's how fast time has passed. To mark his first year, he came to Scotland to emphasise his unwavering commitment to the Union, which means he's effectively renewing his vows to all of us. I don't know if you were aware that you'd married Boris Johnson, but I think you have. <laughs> Person, woman, man, camera, TV. <laughs> He um, is, of course, the minister of the union. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And he's visited all four corners of it, depending on how you define a corner. Well, it was really interesting because he also wrote a piece for the Times where he talked about he was the minister of the union of all corners of the UK. Um, But then he he named uh, four places basically in Scotland that were all on the West Coast. Yeah, was it? There's basically the borders and a bit of Lanarkshire or something. Yeah. Anyway, he arrived in Orkney, which, as we know, is probably one of the most pro-union bits of Scotland. Mm. Um, And he arrived on the day that not only did the people in Orkney find out that they would be paying quite a lot of money per head as we leave the European Union, um, but also support for independence is at an all-time high. Mm, Yeah, so at least he did help out with some fishing. Well, he gave a great photo opportunity to go with the words that Orcadians may be feeling the pinch (laughs) as he held up two crabs. Yes, indeed. But more generally, probably a bad week for Scottish Conservatives, do you not think? Yeah, I mean, as you say, the the, the polling is, it does appear to be moving in one direction at the moment in terms of um, support for independence. And you can't help but think between Brexit and Boris Johnson, that hasn't helped. You know, like I think a lot of people at the moment are probably going to think it's something to do with coronavirus. I think this is probably a more long standing um, issue that's been coming for a while. And it takes a while for these sort of things to resonate. And, you know, as you say, it's a bad week, at least in the sense that um, Adam Tompkins has decided not to stand for the next election. Yeah. I mean, Adam Tompkins came in in the last election as a Conservative MSP. And I think, you know, from the very beginning, people talked about him being um, a rising star. I'm I'm not quite sure that star rose as high as many people predicted. Um, But he's leaving at the next election uh, to concentrate more fully on his academic career. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously a very, very, um, very intelligent man. I'm not sure how much he really seemed to enjoy being a politician. I wonder um, if that's really a fact. There are some people that don't really realise just how rubbish it can be at times, you know? Mm. I think he maybe not didn't particularly enjoy the party political bit of it. And whether or not he supports Boris Johnson, I I have no real idea. I think a lot of I've spoken to a few Conservative MSPs who are obviously very, very uncomfortable with Boris Johnson. Um, some won't even, you know, wouldn't even want to watch one of his speeches at one point. Yeah, I think that's true. And and actually, for Jackson Carlow, the leader of the party, it, quite a damaging time as he, you know, we're, he's losing Adam Tompkins. Ruth Davidson's also standing down mm-hmm. at the next election. They lost the head of communications, Eddie Barnes, um, and who the head was, of media now as well. And the head yeah. of media, and I think Eddie in particular was seen as being instrumental in that partnership with Ruth Davidson of getting the strategy right for the party for the last election. Yeah, I mean, um, it's almost it's almost symbolic, isn't it? That yeah. part of the people that appeared to be on the other end of the party from Boris Johnson. Um, sort of different sorts of conservatives. Yeah. They're kind of softer Tories, non-Brexiteers. And, you, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, and also not, not quite ingrained in the same sense of kind of privilege that people associate with other parts of the Conservative Party, especially yeah. Boris Johnson, obviously. I don't think Ruth Davidson particularly ever liked the guy very much. 
No, I don't think so. I mean, the other thing is that um, people have been saying, look, support for independence shouldn't depend on the fact that people don't like Boris Johnson because these things are transient. We There's another prime minister can come along. But I think it has highlighted again for people in Scotland that they don't necessarily get the party and government that they voted for in terms of Westminster. And I, th- I think it may also be to do with the fact that Nicola Sturgeon has appeared or the perception is that she has done a better job around COVID, even though the results aren't necessarily showing that. Mm. Um, But I think people have really appreciated the way she has dealt with the daily briefings um, compared with Prime Minister. Mm. Yeah, I mean, she this week accused Boris Johnson of using the coronavirus pandemic as a political weapon. Um, and I think that, I mean, that's kind of been going on for a while, this idea that and the Conservatives have this idea that these are party political broadcasts that Nicola Sturgeon's conducting every day. I'm not sure how widely that view is held outside of the Conservative Party. But Although it's quite interesting that she does stand up there every day. I mean, even his trip to Orkney, she labelled as a campaigning visit. And, you know, she's standing there saying we shouldn't be making political points out of um, during the time that we're dealing with a pandemic when actually she is making some political points. Oh, yeah. But she, she, does it, she does it very well. Well, one of my um, favourite things in the world is politicians saying that we should stop being so political. Um, politicians <laughs> claiming that we shouldn't politicise things. Yeah, that yeah. in itself is quite a political thing to say. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, the other good thing, I suppose, the good other, good thing this week was um, we should have a vaccine by the end of the year if we believe reports that are um, circulating. Mm-hmm. But I guess that depends on the Russians not stealing it. Talking of the Russians, Liam, I mean, the week in Parliament, I guess, at Westminster has been absolutely dominated, or should, <laughs> although it's how quickly the news cycle moves on, but the long-awaited uh, Russian report by the Intelligence and Security Committee came out. Mm, that's right, yeah. Um, I mean, interesting. I, there were a whole load of red herrings, I think, being thrown in uh, before publication, and clearly some newspapers being briefed that this would be a report that would expose various things around Russian involvement in the 2014 independence referendum. Mm. But actually, the biggest headline really was that this report showed that we didn't go looking for any Russian involvement in the EU vote. So if you don't find it, it's not there. It's a bit like, you know, if you don't investigate the facts about coronavirus, then no one should have died from it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, when I first saw the, the Telegraph headline, I did think this is basically a perfect storm for Twitter, isn't it? You know, it's, you've got Scottish independence, you've got Russia, you've got foreign government meddling in internal affairs, and you've got House of Commons committee with all the, you know, the background to that that we saw. So but it was obviously going to be a pretty febrile one. Yeah, and then you throw in the fact that a former First Minister, Alex Salmond, presents a programme that is hosted on Russia Today, which is funded by the state. So it mm-hmm. became... There were just so many red herrings thrown in. I, I think I think that was a particular red herring and it allowed the Conservatives and Keir Starmer actually to demand that Nicola Sturgeon should apologise for someone who is no longer even within the SNP mm. um, for presenting a programme that's hosted on Russia Today. Yeah, um, she actually she responded to that a really long time ago. Anyway, yeah, I don't think three it was years quite, ago. Didn't, I wouldn't say it was really a condemnation. It was something like she wouldn't have. It wouldn't have been what she would have preferred him to do, or something like that. Yeah, well, I think also you've got to look at the context of what was going on at that mm-hmm. time as well. Um, but I think 
clearly she isn't happy about it. But Alex Salmond is no longer a member of the SNP. I'm not quite sure why she would have to apologise for it just now. But it's also, for me, you've got a Tory party which takes enormous donations from Russian oligarchs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also the party of government at the moment. So we should have been looking for the things that we would have liked to have seen in that report. Yeah, it does. It seems quite trusting, doesn't it, <laughs> of the yeah. Russians? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember the the trouble uh, Jeremy Corbyn got following the Salisbury poisoning. You know, the idea that he um he asked the Russians to check if Novichok had come from them. Um, yeah, and it seems like a similar level of trust that we're now seeing from the UK government. Um, and then there was also the story that there was the story where a wealthy Russian had won the chance to have dinner with Ruth Davidson at an auction. I don't think she ever actually had that dinner, in fairness. No, I don't think that's happened. So it no. means are the Tories actually taking money off the Russians, but then not? Giving them the part of the the deal that has been agreed, um, but there, you know they have these huge fundraisers, and you can win, you know, play a game of tennis with Boris Johnson. Mm. Um, I think you have to question why you would take that Russian money and not assume that there was something untoward behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously these stories aren't new anyway. You know, there's there's long-standing. Um, at least reports of Russian what they call troll factories, people sitting in in buildings working to try and destabilize foreign states. Yeah, well, I think the point was that there is evidence that the that there was that kind of activity going on during the independence referendum. Therefore, the big question remains: why did why was that not then looked at for the EU referendum? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, both seem pretty plausible to me. It seems yeah. quite likely. So, I mean, the the other, you know, that obviously dominated or should have dominated, I guess, the headlines um, for the week in Parliament at Westminster. I think the important development in our Parliament up here was Nicola Sturgeon announced that people who'd been shielding because of COVID could now enter into a more normal way of life, if you like. They're now allowed to meet more people. And also from the first of next month, we'll definitely be able to get back to a more normal way of life. Um, with the restrictions being lifted. I mean, those people have had it particularly hard, you know, including cancer patients who obviously for for their own health have had to stay away from even family and isolate, but have also seen their own treatments suspended. Um, Mm. And there was also that uh, very uncomfortable um, incident where they got letters indicating that they would be able to come out of shielding and that those letters had been sent in error. Mm. So so it's good news for them that they now yeah. will be able to have a more normal life, albeit the one that we're all living, well, which is know, terribly that's, normal. That's what I was thinking about. I know we talked about this recently, but the, the background on the masks story is that there seems to be a, just a complete unwillingness to realise that there is a link between wearing masks and these sort of developments. You know, people that were shielding being able to go outside again is massive. It's huge yeah. for them. And, yeah. and yet, there's still this bizarre kind of knee-jerk opposition to the idea of wearing a mask, just solely on the basis, I presume, that it doesn't help the individual who's actually doing it. I suppose that's the bit that I've never quite understood. As we move into different areas of this virus and we see infection rates um, going or we see cases of people having the virus coming down, mm. people then start ranting about the fact that um, why didn't we do, why didn't we lift restrictions before? Whereas yeah. The, the restrictions are being lifted because we've managed to comply with restrictions and managed to bring infection rates down. Mm-hmm. 
And it, you know, it, it is remarkable that in Scotland we we've I think we've had now had a full week without any deaths. Yeah, it does. It feels different, doesn't it? And I mean, you yeah. can see things opening up. I've I've been to uh, I haven't been inside anywhere yet. I went to a beer garden recently, and it was it was pretty relaxed. It didn't feel normal. I don't know how long it will be till it does feel normal, if it ever will. But you know, it, it does feel like things are returning to a little bit of normality. And there's a clear link between that and the fact that people are following guidelines. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about pubs. I was my son, who's twenty-two, has been a bit of a feature of some of these uh, broadcasts. But yeah, we should get him on. Why did he <laughs> never come on to this podcast? I wonder, like, we could do as as a, a, a pundit. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's the right response. <laughs> he, um, I mean, it's almost as if they, so, you know, 22, they're all students or just finished uni. They've no summer jobs because there's just nothing out there. So they've got no money. Um, the pubs are open, but he's saying to me, he just finds it too uncomfortable and the price of beer has rocketed. Mm-hmm. So they are almost going back to the days when they couldn't legally drink and sitting in parks now and having yeah. beers. And that seems to have been the, the their new normal, if you yeah, like. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a good money saver. But, you know, the other thing I saw recently was, you know, in one place where people were really far too close to each other, they were drunk, they weren't really carrying out social distancing very well. And the thing is, all the staff there, all the people that are meant to go up to a drunk person and say, you know, you're standing too close to each other, please follow the rules. They were all, you know, 18, 19, 20. And I just yeah. felt so sorry for them. Like, yeah, it's not fair. an awful job to have to do to go up to some, like, you know, 30, 40 year old and tell them, can you please stop sitting on each other's laps? Yeah, well, that's not a good look anyway, is it? But, you know, I'm seeing that in supermarkets as well. I've seen young kids who are working in the supermarkets not being asked by other customers to speak to people who aren't wearing masks. Mm -hmm. It's not fair because it just feels like an aggressive situation and they shouldn't be dealing with it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the other thing to keep in mind is it is always a minority that are breaking these things. Actually, it's going very, very well in terms yeah. of, you know, compliance. And I think there's a kind of natural tendency to latch on to the to the kind of, you know, the the bad example when actually yeah. generally things are going well. And that's a positive thing. And as you say, it is really, really good news for people shielding because how how awful must it have been to have been stuck inside for that long? Yeah. And actually, what I've done this week is speak to um, Rachel Hamilton, the MSP, the Conservative MSP for Ettrick, Roxburgh and Berwickshire. Um, She has rheumatoid arthritis Mm -hmm. and she's been shielding. And we had um, a really good chat about how she's felt during that. I think it's been very, very difficult. And obviously, she's had a bigger caseload as well than normal. Mm -hmm. But she's, she's really found it very difficult isolating. And actually, the whole chat was really, it was quite expansive about her reasons mm. for going into politics, how she feels about some Conservative Party policies, social media abuse and so on. And also how she's kind of fought through adversity. Mm. At one time, she was a single mum on benefits, found herself in a supermarket, unable to pay for her shopping. Um, so we talked very much about that and how that has directed some of the reasons that she's gone into politics. She's also one of our 50 women at 50 and um, the impression I get from her and you'll hear it yourself but she's someone that lives life at full speed she's there's just not (laughs) enough time she really wants to get things done so we'll listen to that now So, Rachel Hamilton, you were elected in 2016. Um, You've nearly done a full term already. How have you found politics in the parliament? Well, it's been a huge learning curve, I have to say. I mean, I got involved in politics. My family were very much tabletop politics. Um, My sister actually uh, worked 
uh, for David McLean, the MP, and I was quite inspired by what she did. But I volunteered in politics over the years since the age of 32. And I've lived in the Scottish borders um, now since I was 22. And so I've been I've been uh, at it for quite a long time, I suppose, knocking on doors and helping with campaigns from Westminster campaigns, local campaigns, um, Holyrood campaigns. And actually in the borders, we were at quite an uh, all time low for a while with the Liberal Democrats in power. And I decided uh, eventually in 2015 just randomly that I was going to stand because I was working um, with my husband in his business at the time and because I'd been volunteering and I I got really into it and I really enjoyed speaking to people on the doorstep and wanted to do a little bit more I just decided that I was going to stand I also felt very strongly that there weren't enough women in politics and so announced that I was going to stand and my husband didn't even know and I came home and um, it was about half past nine in the evening we were having a late supper and I looked ashen and I walked into the door and I said, I've done something and I'm not sure if you're going to be very pleased with me because I'm going to need your help. And I said, look, I have, I'm going to put my name forward as a candidate. I'm going to go forward um, for the candidate selection. And he said, I am totally happy for you. I know you love politics. I will support you all the way. And I, I'm delighted for you. And do you know what? It was the best feeling to have his support because, of course, children, you know, I've got three children, um, had a business and I, I needed to devote a lot of my time to campaigning. So anyway, the, the, the whole thing is, was very positive um, because I, I was able to stand in East Lothian. In East Lothian. I got selected. I had a terrible year because um, three of my family members were very ill and um, uh, and needed quite a lot of uh, looking after. But uh, with my husband's support, I, I managed to go up and down the road to East Lothian and uh, had a very positive experience there and got elected on the regional list. And um, as you'll know, in 2017, I resigned and then stood for Ettrick, Broxham and Berwickshire when uh, Theresa May called the snap election. Yeah. So what did you actually want to do? I mean, you get, I get the enthusiasm and the energy that you got from campaigning and just the whole political environment. What did you actually want to do in politics? Well, I wanted to make sure that women had a voice, not just here in the borders, but in Parliament. I wanted to ensure that there were more women represented in the uh, Conservative Party in Scotland. I think Ruth Davison was incredibly inspiring and strong, confident leader. Uh, and um, she helped me, you know, pursue my career and was very supportive uh, indeed of, of getting more women involved. And on a local basis, I was very involved in the community anyway. And, you know, I, I represented uh, on the parent council and locally in the community and I was chairman of the local village hall and just was very involved. I was also a, a volunteer uh, netball coach at the high school. And so I felt very involved in the community, but just wanted to take it uh, a few steps uh, forward. And I, I have absolutely relished uh, this opportunity. I've relished um, being an elected um, uh, member of the parliament. And when I said earlier that it was a learning curve, of course it was a learning curve because, um, you know, I, I I don't have a career in law. Um, I had to learn a lot about legislation, 
but our party, our 31 members, are very supportive and uh, the seasoned politicians uh, amongst the group uh, have also uh, shown me the ropes and, uh, you know, the, the part in the in the chamber was quite daunting, I have to say, you know, making speeches. And the, these are the things that I didn't think about when I first got elected. What I thought about was engaging with the public, was knocking on doors, uh, was resonating with them, listening to their issues and, and supporting people. And, and you know, I very much feel that, uh, that that is what drove me, is, is actually helping people locally but then taking it into the chamber and representing my constituency very strongly you talk about that woman's voice i mean how important is is being it sounds a, a strange question how important is being a woman to you and being a woman in politics and pushing that particular agenda well i mean we 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 look at the representation of the people's act over 100 years ago now and and some women were given the right to vote at the time, but a hundred years later, you know, I would I would question whether we are truly equal. And I find it staggering, you know, that over a hundred years later, women are still battling inequality, and that, that there is still a gender pay gap that that does exist. And we know that women are in roles that are less well paid. We know that women inherently. Uh, have caring roles and caring responsibilities, whether it's their children or whether it's their parents. And they are uh, also trying to balance uh, perhaps a part-time role to bring in some household income um, to support the family. And I think we are still in a very, uh, I suppose, unequal position still all these years on. And And I just want to ensure that, you know, that gender gap is is closed and that women um, are given the opportunity to get into meaningful employment. I, I feel very lucky because I felt as if I had a right um, to have support from other people. And it was not just women who supported me. It was men. It was my husband. It was the director of the Conservative Party. It was my colleague, John Lamont. It, they all got round me and all very much supported me. And my own father played an incredible uh, supportive role. When I was 16, uh, my father said to me, you know, Rachel, would you like to take on the farm? Because my family are, are, are farming down in the Welsh borders. Uh, I was 16 and he said, would you like to take on the farm? And I was absolutely astounded. And I, I did say, look, uh, you know, it's very generous of you, but I would actually like to um, pursue a different career. And I, I actually went into agronomy. So uh, the confidence that my father gave to me um, to take forward in my life um, has been, you know, quite incredible. And I want other women to be able to feel that confidence. I do think that we live in quite a disparate um, society now where people don't have families around about them, to be able to support them and to have that network. I am involved in Women to Win, um, which Ruth Davison set up. And Ruth um, very much wanted us to be part of a, a mentoring um, you, you know, group that, that gave women confidence and gave the training and the support to women who wanted to get into politics. And we have a really strong network now and we're growing the number of female candidates, candidates that we have. And so it's almost as if it's replacing what I didn't have. My, my support network was my family, um, my kids, 
my friends, and now we're creating this Women to Win, which is effectively uh, the equivalent of, of that, but with, with a colleague group of people. Would you call yourself a feminist? Do you know, I wouldn't. Um, I have this strange connotation of a feminist being uh, quite aggressive and uh, I suppose somebody who calls everything out. I am of the opinion that there is so little time to get things done. And, you know, coming up to 50, it's it's really just a number. However, being 50 has highlighted to me and looking at my parents and how they are still working and grafting and, you know, providing and and really haven't um, had much of a, a break in their lives. But I now look at it as saying that I don't have time to constantly call people out as I think a traditional feminist would do. I find myself being on the softer side of being a feminist and I wouldn't call myself a feminist. I, I, don't, I don't actually know what I am. I'm just a strong advocate for women's equality. And of course, you have three daughters. Yes, and I'm um, so lucky to have three gorgeous, healthy daughters. And, you know, I I'm spend my time instilling confidence into them. You know, I think that uh, kids of today have, you know, been through quite a lot. I think the economic crash of 2008 it affected parents. It certainly affected me and my husband financially. We took 10 years to recover. And then look where we are now. We've had a lockdown. We've, you know, had to, we're living through this pandemic. And I think it has had a detrimental effect on um, household incomes and, and in turn had an effect on, um, you know, our children. And I, I, I know that they are slightly fearful. My eldest daughter, she studied nutrition, but actually hasn't been able to get into a, a job in nutrition. And, it, and she's a she's a clever, clever cookie, but she's you know working at, in a call center and she's not particularly happy. But I have to constantly you know, make sure that she's OK. And I, we, we go on lots of walks together and uh, talk things through. Um, and the same with the second daughter who's not been able to go to study her veterinary nursing at college because you know they, they've not been able to um to to go go to the college and then my youngest daughter is at school and uh, she's probably the most confident of them all but they certainly you know we all we all get on incredibly well and we're all very supportive of each other um as female it, it's incredible how my mother I didn't have that relationship with my mother I um very much was independent feisty um, I kind of almost so independent, I sort of rejected um, that that relationship with my mother, but have now um, kind of overcompensated, I think, with my own children. Um, but yeah, I, I, I am fearful for the future of young people and you know, the looming unemployment crisis that is out there. I think we need to be giving young people um, as much support as possible in, in terms of apprentice, apprenticeships um, and education. Would you say that there's a particular image of um, a, a Tory conservative uh, woman? Gosh, that's quite a difficult question. Uh, I am certainly not that 
person that some people might think is a, an image of a, a typical Tory woman. I, I, I mean, I've, I am born of a huge amount of experience. You know, I've had uh, health issues. I have been a single mother. I have been in the supermarket when I've not been able to pay for my shopping. And I am a proud person. And I've also been somebody who has got myself completely involved in the community. And I, I, I suppose I'm quite opinionated, but I'm certainly not somebody who is of a certain type. And I, and I you know, would reject any suggestion that I was. And you only have to look at, um, you know, the, 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 the women that are coming forward. We are all from such different backgrounds. You know, I might, I, actually, one thing I would like to highlight is that although I cross my T's and dot my I's and I sound, you know, uh, quite English speaking, I'm actually a Welsh person from a very uh, ordinary working background. And I have absolutely busted my gut right throughout my life um i'm hugely resilient because of that i have a level of confidence um that I, i'm proud of and i yeah i don't fit a mold i might sound as though i fit a mold but i certainly don't fit that fit a mold that might be something that people appear that they work middle middle class or you know privately school educated i actually was privately school educated but it was not a fancy school it was a girls school it was a catholic school um, I was sent there because um, uh, my, you know, my my parents aspired for me to have a good education, and it uh, it, it took a lot for them uh, to save up to be able to do that for me. And and I look back, uh, and my mother gave me a huge box of books and uh, uh, my my old my old jotters from school. And I look back and was reading some of them, and you know, Sister Bonaventure. Um, who, who taught us English literature? You know, I, I, I have. I opened the book on this page, and it basically talked about preparation. And it says, "I've got it right in front of me now." It says, "Pull yourself together when you meet a passage that you don't understand. Then reread it carefully and slowly." And the education that we had, and the resilience that they built amongst the women, have certainly uh, made. Um, people go out into their communities and into the workplaces and indeed a few of them went into politics uh, and you know incredibly empowering and inspiring that education was but no going back to your question I'm certainly not of a model uh, that might have been a, a, a typical Tory woman. You, you mentioned resilience quite a lot, Rachel. I mean, how important do you think that is particularly now when we're living through what we're just uh, with the pandemic? How important is it that people have resilience? And how do you think you teach somebody to have resilience? Well, Mandy, I was very, very lucky because I had a, a great family network around me when I was growing up. And I had grandparents that were very non-judgmental and they also built confidence. And, I, and as I've said before, I, I, I do worry that family units sort of break up and people move away and we all live you know quite far away from each other now and it's important there is there is something there there is someone there is a mentor whoever they might be whether they are um, an older person or somebody that you can turn to somebody that you actually feel inspired by um, and 
can set a good example. And I think that that's what gives women resilience. I've been knocked back so many times. I have had inappropriate comments made by men. I've had sexist comments. And, you know, I do feel sorry for men that, uh, that, that say inappropriate comments. And it, but it makes you stronger. It makes you bounce back. And I don't believe that we should have to be in that position. But um, my husband would tell you that I'm probably stronger than him. You know, he sometimes just wants to, uh, you know, throw, throw the towel in on, on various things. But I just keep going on and uh, always trying to find a solution, always being positive. Uh, I feel in a strange way that I'm sort of racing against time. No, not for any reason whatsoever. Um, I just want to live every day with the fullest uh, amount of action and and finding solutions as possible. I think actually resilience has been something that has been shown to be really strong within communities in Scotland um, during the pandemic. We've seen incredible action by people uh, working within resilience hubs and, and helping the older and vulnerable people, giving out food parcels and, and making sure that people are okay. Um, especially when they're in social isolation, giving them a call. Uh, and that is very important to keep communities together. I mean, when you talk about um, resilience, and you, as you say, you've been through some pretty hard times, being a single mum at one point and having health problems. When you take all of that in and then you look at things like um, the two-child cap and comments made by your colleague, Michelle Ballantyne, does that make you wince? Do you worry about those kind of policies that your party has? I think that's why it's important to get um, people with an incredible amount of experience involved in politics, particularly women who are living through those experiences. Uh, you know, there are policies made that perhaps uh, I don't agree with, other people don't agree with, but it's important that our voices are absolutely heard. And I know what it's like to be, uh, you know, a single mother, uh, and I have huge empathy for people who are in that situation. I managed to, you know, find a new partner and to constantly work. I mean, the worst advice I think I ever had um, was to give up my job uh, for a year. Although, in a way, it, even though it caused financial hardship, it actually helped me refocus. And I was there for my two children, and I just had to live off. Uh, the little amount of savings that I had left at the time and I, I'm a proud person as well I, I didn't go to anybody else for help at the time I didn't go to my parents because I didn't want them to feel under pressure and I wanted them to believe that you know I was coping and I was in control but actually it was probably one of the worst years of my life uh, you know and I never forget the day that I couldn't pay for my shopping in the supermarket and not you know not not a lot of people will know that but um being in politics has given me the confidence to speak up about things and, uh, you know, speak up about issues that do really matter to women, such as, you know, we talked about menopause. I, I'm not going through the menopause, but I listened to other contributions from my politician colleagues in the chamber. And I was quite astounded to find that, you know, most of them who contributed to that debate were actually going through the menopause. And so it's about listening to people. It's about listening to people's experience, about getting more women involved and about having uh, an understanding of uh, what people have to go through. And I think that's what makes a good politician. 
Do you think you always then have to agree with wider policies that your party might have? Well, you can have conversations, um, you know, behind the scenes about policies and and actually creating a policy uh, and changing a policy is actually quite a powerful thing to do. And having the ability to convince people that perhaps a policy isn't right, it is 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 actually a skill it's quite a hard skill it's one of the skills that you learn as a politician because you're almost like a salesperson you know you need to get around the table and you need to actually convince um not just your your colleagues um but you have to listen to the general public as well uh, as to what is the right way to go forward with policies you know not everybody gets the policies right you know all parties have policies that are um, and have flaws in them. Um, and those policies over the years could be dropped, could be changed um, or, or modified. At the next election, Rachel, because it must be, I mean, you, you have a really strong sense of being a woman and what women can do. It must be a disappointment at the moment when you look at the Tory benches and see so few women. I mean, I'm assuming that you would like to see more elected at the next election. Yes, I, I want to see more women uh, in the next election. There are more women standing in the next election. We've got, um, you know, we've got a good increase in the number of uh, female candidates standing across Scotland. Of course, I'd like to see more. I'd always like to see more. You know, we uh, have been um, involved in lots of Zoom calls, and the Conservative Women's Organisation and Women to Win um, have been very active during the pandemic. They've been supporting each other, um, and we, you know, we have a great big WhatsApp group, which is fantastic, and we can share stories and we can share our experiences and share what's good. And uh, you know, that mentorship uh, part of Women to Win is so incredibly important. And yeah, of course, I desperately want to see. Um, more women standing in politics. Um, I, I want to see more diverse candidates as well standing in politics. I don't think we can stand still. I think there's still a huge amount of work. And I absolutely want to be um, a person who can, you know, lead by example and, and bring people into the fold and work with people and, and show people how it's done and get out on the doorsteps to give, give those women uh, confidence to to get into politics because to be quite honest it's a very very daunting job you know that lots of women who have been subject to racist abuse sexist abuse online media I mean all the time uh, on social media I am uh, I have trolls um, making comments and actually it's quite off-putting so many people say to me Rachel I don't know how you cope with this you have the skin of a rhino and I absolutely I don't want to have the skin of a rhino but do you know what I've had to build it over the years. Rachel you mentioned um, your 50th birthday and obviously you took part in our um, 50 women at 50 interviews which were uh, really enlightening and actually really energizing just seeing what people are doing with their lives but I wonder what would your teenage self think of you now approaching 50 and an elected conservative politician? Well, I've thought about what my teenage self would think about what I'm doing now. And actually, my teenage self would say, give yourself a kick up the arse, Rachel, because you're not going as hard and as fast as you should be. When I was a teenager, I was incredibly 
incredibly confident. I actually didn't give a stuff about what people used to think. And as I grew older, I started to have this conscience and it really annoys me because I don't want to be able, I don't want to be held back. I don't want people to be thinking that I, uh, you know, cannot achieve um, whatever I want to achieve. I say that to my daughters, you know, they say, oh, I am... I'm going to apply for a job. I'm going to I'm going to do this. I'm going to take up this activity. And before they know it, I've talked them into sort of being the best at what they can be and um, running the company or um, doing a gig in Ibiza or whatever. You know, I look at me as if I'm completely mad. My teenage self was a different self to I am now. I'm much more cautious. Um, I, I suppose when I was a teenager, I kind of went round just um, quite a narrow um, kind of vision, and it was very much in my own bubble. Now I'm much more wary about things going on around me, about not offending people, about working with collaboratively with people, um, and I suppose just just being a little bit more cautious. I was interested that you said that in the interviews that we did, that when you were 18, you voted for the Green Party. And you've obviously gone on quite a journey from there to then being an elected um, Tory MSP. But I was watching, uh, listening to something today, which was a, a Green Party hustings for a deputy leadership position. And they were all the candidates were asked um, the one question, what is a woman? which doesn't appear to be a contentious issue, and yet none of them were able to answer it, given the debate around the Gender Recognition Act, etc. What is a woman, Rachel? Well, first of all, I just want to address your point there about the voting for the Green Party when I was 18. And I absolutely am a huge advocate of the countryside and um, biodiversity and you know, rural affairs and supporting the local rural economy. And it, it, it seemed to me as well that uh, the, the, the Green Party um, were all about the environment. But of course, as I grew older, the Green Party weren't about the environment they they were um you know in scotland in particular they're certainly um not about the the, the environment so i th- then segued into kind of the traditional voting which my whole family uh you know, card carrying members of the conservative party and i suppose it just um it, it just evolved uh, as i i saw a little bit of sense but and i could also bring in the environment into um, the Conservative Party, which of course David Cameron was very um, supportive of. But just to your point there about the Gender Recognition Act, I think we're going to have difficult times um, ahead. And I, I, I suppose I can't ask answer what a woman is. I mean, the biological sense of a woman is different to what some people would uh, would determine as a description of a woman in an, on a legal basis. I, I'm very, I feel very strongly that I want to see um, women's spaces protected. I want to ensure that women feel safe and secure. And I don't want to degrade what a woman, a woman in the sense of a biological sense, which has obviously been up for de- debate with J.K. Rowling and the term, you know, having ovaries um, and, and having 
um, the organs which are associated with being woman and not um, becoming a woman uh, in the sense of the definition of a woman. So I think it's a very difficult and emotive subject to be talking about. And I think it's caused quite a number of splits in all parties, especially the within the SNP party. And um, it will be very interesting to see how this debate is taken forward, whether it is at all before the Holyrood elections of next year. And how far do you want to take your politics, Rachel? I mean, could you, would you see yourself as a, uh, the leader of the party in Scotland, for instance? So I've shied away from putting myself forward to be the leader of the party in Scotland um, because at the time we needed somebody who um, had, you know, experience and could lead us forward uh, uh, with, without having us to reset the party. And, and Jackson Carlaw has done that admirably, albeit in very difficult circumstances um, during the coronavirus pandemic. So I, could I be leader? Um, I, I don't want to rule it out, but I also know my limitations and my limitations with regard to the importance that I put on my family and my health is, is a big factor in that. And I don't think anybody can be a political leader without throwing themselves in it um, and, and absolutely, you know, almost to the detriment of, you know, their, their personal life and other issues. And just during this whole a lockdown and everything else that we're still learning and dealing with what have you learned about yourself gosh I have to be very honest with you what I have learned about myself is that I have got my flaws and I have got my weaknesses and I have found this whole thing incredibly difficult I mean for the first three months I think I worked seven days a week almost an average of about 12 hours a day and I know that most politicians have been in the same situation and it actually it's filled me with oh absolute horror um having to stay upstairs um on my computer in the office I used to make myself a flask of coffee sometimes I didn't eat a meal during the day um and just completely exhausted I couldn't help my daughter with her online homeschooling I couldn't um, be there for my other two at the time you know when they needed me and even though we we're all in the same house and my husband, you know, was obviously his business had to be shut down. He's in hospitality and it's all been a huge amount of uncertainty um, for him. And uh, it it was actually horrible um, sitting on Zoom calls um, for hours upon hours in front of a screen. And actually my, I think for the first time in my entire life, I think my well-being was definitely affected and I have a very very supportive uh, team around me and they just said you know you, you need to take a you need to take a break you need to um you know to take your foot off the gas here and over the last sort of uh, three weeks I have done that but what I have learned is and I've been incredibly touched by is the incredible um uh, local action so the the people who've been out there looking after the vulnerable and the shielding and people who have been very supportive of each other but what I have also learned and 
it's quite unbelievable is that actually people out there have been quite nasty to each other and that they there's been lots of neighbor neighbor disputes and people cliping on each other and there's only a small percentage of that but it kind of spoilt it for those people who were really um rallying around everybody uh, and here in the borders we are a very small community and we look look out for each other i mean i've actually been shielding so it's also been very difficult for me and I, because I couldn't go into hospital to have my normal uh, medication, I had to change. And that's also been quite stressful. So it's <laughs> it, it's been a, an experience of kind of love and hate, I suppose. But what it's taught me is that my, my family are incredibly important to me. And having a family meal at the end of the day was the best part um, of this, this whole crisis. All right, Liam. So, I mean, I, th I feel that as things progress, the rants are probably less of a rant and sometimes hopefully a bit more philosophical. But I think you know that I've been saying for some time that somebody would eventually get themselves into trouble on social media, particularly on Twitter, for, for saying things that are defamatory. Mm. And it's why... I guess I think journalists are probably better placed on Twitter to get into debates and explore things because we know the rules. Yeah. So, so the background to this is that a news website aimed at British school children has agreed to pay an unsubstantiated sum uh, after it implied that JK Rowling's comments on gender caused harm to trans people. That's the yeah. that's kind of what's leading you into this, isn't it? Yeah. So the day that's as you say, an online newspaper for children. It's actually recommended by Education England and has a number of subscribers um, mm -hmm. across England. They have had to print this apology um, to J.K. Rowling, and clearly behind that was that J.K. Rowling um, had sued them, uh, had threatened them with a defamation case. Mm. Um, and putting aside the kind of reasons for that, because we've explored some of those in the past, I think this is more about I, I a feel that people let rip on social media without thinking about the consequences. B, I think defamation is heavily weighted um, against people without money mm -hmm. because you need money to be able to take a case. So J.K. Rowling, clearly, you know, a very, very rich woman, um, has almost been able to make a stand on this and has threatened them with defamation. That has led to more criticism of her being rich and being able to use the system. But actually, I think it sends out a stronger message that people need to be very careful about what they say on social media. I mean, when I talked about it on Twitter, I was probably referring to some of the things that I've been accused of on Twitter, and I wouldn't be able to sue people for saying the things that they've said about me, even though that they are very damaging, I think, to your reputation or have mm -hmm. the potential to be damaging to your reputation. So yeah. I suppose the rant for me is more about caution and mm -hmm people not throwing out words like transphobe, bully, racist, without actually understanding the consequences of what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of that, I suppose, is the people that don't have those sort of resources that JK Rowling has. And you, know, you can see this sometimes with the, the way that tabloid coverage affects just normal people. You know, they don't really have the ability to go after a tabloid newspaper in the same way. 
Yeah. Um, so it's not. Yeah, there's definitely a, a power imbalance there. There definitely is, but I mean, you know, the Scottish the Scottish Parliament has been looking at some time of uh, reforming laws around defamation, and we should see progress on that. But I think, I, I think with this one in particular, you have to set aside some of the the envy that there can be about someone having a lot of money, and just say, was there a principal point here? It doesn't matter how rich somebody is, you shouldn't be saying things about them that are wrong. And you shouldn't be so rich that you're the only person that can then do something about that. Do you think, uh, not politicians, do you think social media companies need to take more responsibility for this? Because you could argue they're a publisher. Yeah, absolutely. And I, well, actually, there was a, I saw something this week about this, uh, the Twitter are apparently looking at whether or not they should um, be a pay for subscription type service. Just not sure how that would work. I mean, I'm not sure I would want to pay to get some of the abuse that I get. Yeah, well, I mean, you'd probably get better abuse when people start paying, <laughs> wouldn't they? They up, they up their game. Yeah, maybe. Well, I don't know who can act on that one. <laughs> well, probably politicians can do something about that. Okay, Mandy, what are the words? Ah, come on, it's person, woman, man, camera, TV. My presidential selection is secure. <laughs> so they say a week is a long time in politics and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's politically speaking podcast i hope we've enlightened and entertained and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics remember you know a podcast that can help them with that If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine, available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.